Nine verses without a hiccup. I'm impressed. That's awesome. Well, if you haven't noticed, it's officially Christmas time. Right? Right? So a couple, uh, let's see, last Wednesday we had a group of uh, church members uh, come and they did a fantastic job. We had our hanging of the greens. Uh, we put up this, uh, this amazing Christmas tree and decorated it and there's, there's greenery everywhere and there's wreaths everywhere. Uh, it is officially the holidays. Now, uh, if you know me, I'm not a big fan of decorations. My wife calls me uh, Scrooge because <laughs> I'm not a big fan of decorating. But I will say, and this is what I always defend myself with, I'm not a big fan of decorating, but I am a big fan of Christmas. Okay, there's kind of a difference for me. Uh, and, I, and I do, I love Christmas. I think this song uh, is absolutely true that it is the most wonderful time of the year. I love Christmas. But here's what I think is most amazing about Christmas, is if you sit back and you look, that one of the most amazing things about this season is that Christmas changes everything. I mean, everything is changed by Christmas. Just look around you. Uh, we decorate in ways that we don't decorate any other time of the year. We put up lights. We put up Christmas trees. We put up fake snow inside our houses so that our fake snow villages look authentic, right? We have these ceramic houses with lights and electronics that we put all over our dining room tables. Anybody else have that? I had that at my house. Okay, right? Somebody over here. Is, some men are like, yes, amen, brother. So thank you for, for filling my pain. Uh, we sing songs that we don't sing any other time of the year. Uh, our radio stations devote their entire programming to playing Christmas songs. Even our favorite artists put out albums that are specifically designed for Christmas. We put, they put out everything from beautiful a cappella albums like the Pentatonics, great, great group. Uh, we have everything from that to the completely absurd. I found this uh, when I was doing a Google search. This is uh, Christmas with Colonel Sanders. Uh, on record, if anybody wants to, to eBay that. So we, everything, everything, even Colonel Sanders is affected by Christmas. And he was so led to put out an album for us. Stores. Stores have, for, for many months now, began to advertise like mad to try to convince you to spend money in their store. Even my kids, my kids are at the age now, we got the, the dreaded Toys R Us catalog in the mail, and uh, we gave them a pen, and we should have just, you know, handed them the magazine and let them just hand it right back to us, because everything in there is circled, right? So that's just, that's how it is. Christmas changes everything. We have Black Friday, we have Small Business Saturday, we have Cyber Monday, and then if you have anything left after all of that, we have Giving Tuesday. But that's if you haven't spent all your money buying everything that you think you can't live without, right? We did a sermon series about that not too long ago. But even our kids, like I said earlier, they are changed by the Christmas season. You can see it in their eyes. They get so excited and enthusiastic about gifts and about Santa. And that's really what most of us love, right? Most of us love seeing the joy in the faces of our children as, as the anticipation of December 25th builds and builds and builds. It's a time of year that many families come together. Some of them, that, that's the first time all year. That they've come together and they've sat down at a table and looked across the table at one another. But if we're honest, we also know that uh, this is, many times, Christmas is a season of pain. Uh, many times Christmas is uh, a time when uh, 
if your family is not home with you for the holidays or, or you've lost a loved one or you have feelings of loneliness, those feelings get magnified and they build and many times they can become overwhelming. In fact, uh, for my very own family, December is a reminder that uh, another year has gone by since uh, one of my closest friends and, and my father-in-law passed away. So every December that rolls by, it's just a reminder that another year has gone by. Another year has been lived without them. It is incredibly difficult not to be affected by Christmas. I would dare say it's almost impossible not to be affected by Christmas. So I think an important question for us is what is it about Christmas that changes everything? What is it that influences and, and just really changes the world around us? And if I was going to give a one-word answer, which you know I'm not going to do because I'm a preacher, I'm going to tell you that one word and then we're going to talk about it. But the one-word answer would be hope. I think Christmas changes everything because it stirs up hope. It stirs up hope inside of us. It, it stirs up a hope for something more. A hope for something extraordinary, a hope for, for change, a hope for a new life, a new experience. It's, it's, it stirs up hope for new beginnings. And that's really a part of our longing that's built into us. It's a part of our humanity. It's a longing that has been built into our souls. And at Christmas, this special time of year, that, that longing gets amplified. And it gets stirred up and it gets, begins to build. And, and that hope can't help but come alive during this Christmas season. And here's the interesting thing. The world knows that. The world over time has taken notice and has realized that Christmas is a wonderful time for them to try to seize the opportunity to attempt to satisfy the cries of our souls. I would say to rob Christmas of its soul. And really, that, that's the problem with Christmas. The problem is that all of those things that I just mentioned that, that make Christmas wonderful, that make it uh, enjoyable and make it a fun time, uh, they don't satisfy. The trees, the lights, the greenery, the hot chocolate, the Christmas specials, the songs, even the family coming together does not ultimately satisfy the inner cry of our soul. And it's not because those things are necessarily bad. They're not bad. Most of them are very, very good. They're not bad. They're just simply not enough. They're not enough to satisfy the stirring that's going on inside of us. It's not enough to satisfy because they are not the, the true soul of Christmas. And so I want us to take some time. I think it would be beneficial for us to take some time to talk about what the true soul of Christmas is on, on week one of Advent. As we prepare for, for Christmas Day to, to remind ourselves what the soul of Christmas really is. And in order to do that, we have to travel back in time. We have to go back before Christmas trees and before Christmas lights and before fake snow and before Colonel Sanders' Christmas. Uh, we have to go back before pageants and before gifts. We even have to go back further than the very first Christmas to understand what the soul of Christmas is really all about. We have to go back to the time 
of Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah, in it, is, it's full of a message of two things, of judgment and of hope. And those two things are held in tension. It's something important for us to understand that many times things that we see that are in conflict in God's word through his power are actually held in tension. Like, how can God be just and loving? Because he's perfect. And he holds them in perfect balance. And we see the same thing here. We see in the book of Isaiah a story, that an, an, an entire book of the Bible that holds in tension judgment and hope. They don't conflict with one another. They balance one another. And so Isaiah starts with this grand vision where he's transported into the throne room of God. And the glory of God fills the place. And Isaiah was not fist pumping. He was like, oh man, this is going to be awesome. That's not what he was doing. He was in panic mode. He literally was dumbfounded. In fact, he thought he was going to die. Because he was in the pure presence of God's holiness. And he knew that he was not holy. And he was in fear that God's pure and powerful and dangerous holiness would destroy him because of the sin that he knew was in his heart. And it was at that moment, this is key, it was at that moment that a heavenly being brings a coal from the altar fire in God's God's throne room. And he takes that coal and he touches it to Isaiah's tongue and to his lips and he purifies him. It's It's symbolically purifying Isaiah and making him holy and it's at that point that God calls him to go and proclaim judgment on the whole nation of Israel why because they had not been faithful to God in fact God says that he was going to destroy the nation of Israel and that they were going to be sent out into exile that's the judgment part of the book of Isaiah but on the other side of the message there's something completely different a message of You see, God was not going to completely destroy the nation of Israel. In this vision, we see the nation of Israel, and it's compared to a tree. So we have the nation of Israel, and and in this vision that Isaiah receives, he kind of receives this word picture. And and the nation of Israel is like a tree, and that tree is chopped down and falls to the ground. And we know that when a tree is chopped, chopped down and it falls over, that the part that falls over dies, right? It's disconnected from its roots. But in that same vision, there's this little seed of hope that's planted. In that vision, the Lord reveals that out of that stump, a new branch, a holy seed, would spring up. And that 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 new branch would restore the nation of Israel. That's the hope. That was proclaimed. That though the tree was chopped down, that a seed would well up and spring up and would restore the nation. That's the hope that is proclaimed. That there was going to be a future king from the line of David that would rise up and would completely, perfectly obey the covenant. And that in that, Israel would then be able to obey the covenant. And God's blessings would be shown not just to Israel, but to the entire world. And it's interesting that this, that this tension between judgment and hope, it actually shows up throughout the entire book. We were talking about this in, in my Sunday school class this morning. In, in Isaiah, there are 66 chapters. Okay, 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 
focus primarily on the judgment of God, and they have a, a theme of hope that's strung throughout. Okay, so it focuses primarily on judgment and has an underlying theme, theme of hope. The last 27 chapters focus primarily on the hope and comfort of God, but also reminds us of God's judgment. You see any similarities there? You know that, that our entire Bible has 66 books? And that our Old Testament has 39 books? And our New Testament has 27? Our Old Testament has an overlaying theme of God's judgment that carries with it a string, a line of hope. And then, of course, in our New Testament, we have an overwhelming message of hope with an underlying reminder of God's judgment. This similarity is so close between the book of Isaiah and the entire Bible that, that many theologians refer to, the old, to, to Isaiah as the New Testament of the Old Testament. Because it, it clo so closely mimics and matches our New Testament. In fact, in Isaiah 40, we have this message of a, a voice crying out in the wilderness to make a way for the Lord, right? What happens in the Gospels? We learn about this guy named John who goes out into the wilderness and cries out to make a way for the Lord who's coming. And the scripture that we read earlier from Isaiah 64, uh, it is also a cry of our soul for hope. Not just for hope, but for our hope to be satisfied. Hope that goes unsatisfied is bitter. But how sweet is it when our hope is, is satisfied perfectly. And I think that it's a beautiful text that articulates the longing of our heart. And it also illustrates how God perfectly satisfies our hope. So I'd like for us to, to read Isaiah again. I'm going to start in the very first verse. It says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountain would quake at your presence. Did you hear that? We, we, we're seeing a theme of our hope that, that, you, that God would come down, would tear open the heavens and would come down. Essentially, there's this cry, Oh, Lord, Restore us to what we once were. Lead us back to Eden where we can be gathered with you and we can be in presence with you and we can enjoy a relationship with you. That's ultimately the, 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 the hope that we have and the cry of our soul is that God would tear open the heavens and that we would be in perfect fellowship and perfect unity with him again. The text goes on in hope. The text goes on in hope. Knowing that God has done amazing things in the past and knowing that he can do amazing things in the future, we should anticipate things from God. We should expect things from God. We need to remember that all that he's done in the past and we should hope for things that he'll do in the future. But that's hard, right? Because we get disappointed. Life's frustrating. Life's, life uh, wounds us and, and it angers us and, and we get beat down. That's why restoring the soul of Christmas is so crucial. It is so crucial for us to look back and remember what God has done. So that our hope will be strengthened for what God will do. 
We have to remember that God did indeed answer this cry in Isaiah. He did rip open the heavens. And he did come to this earth to be with us in human form as a little child. And that should fuel our hope that one day he will do that again as prophesied in Revelation. Let's read on. Going on, it says, when you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. There is no God like our God. There is no God who takes it upon himself. To satisfy the hope and the longing of uh, his soul, uh, his creation soul. There's no other God that does that for his people. There's no other God who, when his creation deserves judgment, provides rescue. Let's keep reading. But you were angry, and we sinned because you hid yourself. We transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us unto the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And that indeed is the good news, that God did shape us, and he did create us, and that we are his children, and he will not leave us without hope. He will not leave our hope unsatisfied. So our soul's cry is literally satisfied in Christmas because Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of the world, that we could possibly be reunited with the Father and have a, a face-to-face, an intimate relationship with him like we once did, like our ancestors did in Eden. Jesus is the faithful king that was prophesied who will tear open the sky and will come down in glory and be with us. I want to invite Jason to come back up. Uh, He's going to play for us. As we finish up, I just want to remind you, as disciples of Jesus, we are called to restore The soul of Christmas. The soul of Christmas is not the glitter and the trees and the packages and the Hallmark specials. Those things aren't bad. Those things are fine. They're good. But they are not the the soul of Christmas. The soul of Christmas is that our hope has been satisfied. God has tore open the heavens. and He has come down. And he has made a way for us to return to a place where we have a perfect, unified relationship with our Father in heaven. So as Jason plays, I want to leave you with one more verse from the, from the book of Isaiah. I want to encourage you, if, if you're brave enough, I want to encourage you to close your eyes as I read. I want to read these words, and I want, them to, I want you to allow them to sink into your soul. Allow them to stir up hope. To stir up a desire to, to see Christmas elevated above the department stores, to be elevated above 
the, the stress of, of shopping, to be elevated ab- above uh, Santa Claus, to be elevated above the, just, just the, all the things that distract us from its true soul. To allow Christmas to be what it was designed to be. A satisfying promise that our hope has been fulfilled in Christ. So as, as you have your eyes closed, I just want to read for you Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. It says to us, For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much.